No, Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to Superman. Welcome back to Superman Forever Radio. This is episode 23, and I am still your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder. And this is a Superman podcast for Superman fans, by a Superman fan, and one of many such podcasts, all of which you can find at the supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman Forever Radio is twice weekly. On Thursdays, we go through the Superman comics following Infinite Crisis in 2006 to the present. And since it's Sunday, that means we look at the world of Superman in its many, many forms, as well as look at Superman the Animated Series episode by episode. This week looks like a great episode. We're going to be doing an overview of Superboy the Boy of Steel, from his creation in the comics, to Connell to Superboy Prime, and a little bit on the 80s TV series. But before we jump into those, let's play a promo for another great podcast from the Superman Podcast Network, and then we look at this week's news. Look, up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world! Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the man. Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com. We're sitting on top of the story of the century here. In news this week, friend of the po- of the Superman Forever podcast and a prolific vidcaster came and stole was featured in the St. Cloud Times for having the largest Superman collection in Minnesota. And I just want to extend a hearty congratulations and a well done to Cayman. I look forward to seeing him this summer in Metropolis at the Superman celebration. Elsewhere, a rare copy of Action Comics No. 1 that was stolen from actor Nicolas Cage was recovered in a storage unit in the San Fernando Valley. Cage, who collected the insurance money from the theft, was not suspected of any, of any fraud. And are you a fan of Smallville who may have missed a few episodes or a few seasons? No need to fear the finale. The producers have said that it will be standalone with a lot of payoffs to previous seasons. So even if you've been out of the loop for a while... You can still enjoy the show's final episode after 10 years on May 13, 2011. And in Superman, the Man of Steel movie news, I talked briefly about Michael Shannon having been cast as General Zod in the upcoming Zack Snyder-directed reboot movie. Shannon talked about his audition process on stage at, at the River Run 2011 International Film Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I do have a clip, which I've cut down for time purposes, but here is Michael Shannon talking about being cast as General Zod. I was like, I'm talking to my aunt, and she's like, how about Superman? <laughs> what? Uh, like, the idea that I would ever be in Superman. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. The, the guy I really wants, he's just, he's like, you should go meet him. So I go meet him, and he's ser- seriously sitting there, and he's telling me, he's like, you can't read the script, so I'm just going to tell you what happened. And he spends like a half hour telling me every scene in this movie. And he's at his home in Pasadena, and I'm looking out, there's like the Rose Bowl over there, and there's little hummingbirds flying around. I'm like, I'm on acid. This is <laughs> And then, uh, and then like a month later, it's like, okay, you're General Zod. Yeah, I met, I met Zack Snyder. 
first time I just went out and met with him. Then a week later, they said, well, you have to come back. Because they want to see if you and Superman have chemistry. <laughs> the studio. want to see if you and Superman. So it was basically, it was, it was a situation where Zach's like, I want him. And the studio's like, no, he has to audition. So they disguised it in the, under the veil of chemistry. Chemis- chemistry. Did you do a screen test? Like, did they have cameras there? Well, it was, yeah, it was, like, it was like in a little room, like a little office room there um, with a little video camera. And... Um, the air conditioning was really loud, and we didn't have any microphones. The only microphone was in the camera, and they were like, oh, are they going to hear this? We're like, well, let's turn the AC off. So we spent like 15 minutes trying to turn the AC off, and nobody could find it. And then they were like, well, it doesn't turn off. It runs all the time, even when no one's here. And I'm like, okay, well, let, uh, let's jump into the scene then. Uh, and, uh, like, they would do it different ways, like, They'd be like, okay, the first time we do it, we're just going to be on you. So, Henry, you sit over here. And, you, and then Zach was like, okay, let's do it where you're, you're both profile and you're facing each other. Like we were on the $60,000 pyramid or something. <laughs> and then it was like, okay, let's do it where you're standing up. Uh, let's do it where you're you know, rolling around on the floor. Did know? he give you directions? Yeah, he was like, can you do one? One time, start to see where you're a little bit nicer. <laughs> like, kind of friendly. Meanwhile, his castmate, Diane Lane, who will be playing Clark Kent's adoptive mother, Martha Kent, shared a little of her own experience with the heavily guarded script over on when she guest starred on Jay Leno, or The Tonight Show with Jay Leno this week. So I had to read the script under lock and key in a room. You mean you go there and then... You go to the offices and it's a locked door and the curtains are drawn and, you know, that was the time I had. And of course, new rumors have popped up. They'll keep popping up. We can't stop them from popping up. One rumor states that we will see the villainous Feora, who Ursa was based on, as well as a rebooted Krypton, which owes more to Coruscant from Star Wars than the Arctic. Once again, there's a lot of speculation about the movie will feature uh, a very birthright-based plot, which features Clark in West Africa discovering himself. And Lindsay Lohan won't die, and neither will rumors of her involvement with the Man of Steel. The latest version of the Lohan Superman saga has her up for the role of Lana Lang, Superman's Smallville gal pal in the flick. And look, I'm I'm, I'm just going to admit it, I'm going to be in the minority, and I know that. I hate Lindsay Lohan and her personal life. But, I don't think she would make a bad Lana. Her acting chops are solid. But I think that her recent casting in the Gotti Family biopic with John Travolta may take her out of any running if she was ever up for the part to begin with. So just chalk each and every one of those up to rumors and keep them on that shelf until Warner Brothers puts out an official announcement. Finally, are you heading to your local comic shop this week? New comics come out this Wednesday, April 20th, 2011. Make your own jokes about the date, but the Superman books hitting the stand are Supergirl, number 63, Superman Batman number 83, and the trade paperback Superman Batman Worship, which reprints Superman Batman number 72 through 75, and the Batman Beyond story from Superman Batman Annual number 4. So please go out and support your local comic shop, and right after this promo we talk Superboy, so stick around because this episode is just getting started. We 
We've spent 22 episodes talking about Superman and the world he inhabits. We've even talked about his origins. However, there is, or more to be more accurate, there was and is again a time period that we we have not explored, and that's Superman's early years fighting evildoers and hiding his secret identity in Smallville as Superboy. Now, the concept of a younger Clark Kent assuming a heroic heroic role prior to coming to Metropolis was actually pitched by Jerry Siegel in 1938 following the initial success of Superman. Now, DC balked at the idea at the time, but they would change their tune in 1944 after Batman's teen sidekick Robin became a hit with the younger readers. And Superboy would make his debut in More Fun Comics number 101, which would create a further rift between DC Comics and Jerry Siegel, who was serving in World War II at the time the comic actually came out. The Superboy feature would actually move over to Adventure Comics with issue number 103, where he would headline the anthology book for hundreds of issues to come until something else happened, which we'll get into in just a moment. Unlike the cityscape of Metropolis, the Boy of Steel's feats would take place in the rural community of Smallville. Clark's costume was the same as the one he would wear as an adult, fashioned from the blankets Clark had been wrapped in when, he, when the Kents found him in the rocket. In his first outings, Clark moved fast enough not to be seen as anything more than a red-blue blur before introducing himself to the police. The Boy of Steel quickly became embraced by the small town, who erected a sign touting Smallville to be the home of Superboy. When not fighting crime, Clark attended Smallville High School and worked at the general store. Clark's classmates included the red-haired Lana Lang and his best friend, Pete Ross. Lana had a huge crush on the Boy of Steel and either completely ignored Clark or suspected the secret identity connection from time to time. And like her Metropolis counterpart, Lois Lane, she would try to uncover Superboy's secret identity and occasionally transform into any number of things in the style of Jimmy, Jimmy Olsen. To protect his identity, Clark actually dug a tunnel that led from the Kent home to an opening on the outskirts of town so nobody would see him coming and going and suspect that Clark Kent and Superboy were one and the same. But one person found out his secret and not only kept it, he helped to protect it. And the best part is, Clark didn't even know that none other than Pete Ross had discovered the secret while on a camping trip. Pete never told Clark that he knew his secret and would make diversions or excuses for Clark's absence. And Superboy wouldn't be alone in his never-ending battle for long. With Action Comics number 210, Crypto, the Dog of Steel, was introduced, giving Superboy a sidekick and a kindred spirit from his home planet. Crypto held all of the powers of Superboy and even wore a matching red cape. And while Clark had great friends in Pete and Lana and Crypto, his life in Smallville would change upon meeting a young man who had a barn full of Superboy memorabilia and a full head of hair. Lex Luthor would befriend Superboy, which would lead the Boy of Steel to build the budding scientist a well-stocked lab, which would turn into a very sad sad event, when Superboy discovered a fire at, the, at Luther's lab, and in the process of saving Lex, not only destroyed Lex's work, but caused Lex Luthor to lose all of his hair, becoming the bald visage that we know today. Luthor accused Superboy of doing this out of jealousy, and swore vengeance upon the Boy of Steel, which, of course, would carry over into the adult world. Superboy would meet a group of superpowered teens, so he would not feel so alone, and these teens actually came from the 30th century and called themselves the Legion of Superheroes. The Legion and Superboy became very synonymous. 
and Clark would venture to the future to fight the evils of the 30th century with them, then return to Smallville when the day is done. And the weird thing is, when he was there, he would actually meet Supergirl, who wouldn't arrive on Earth his, in his linear time for quite some time until he was an adult. However, his memories and hers were always erased upon returning to their respective timelines. Uh, Clark returning to Smallville when the day is done and going on with his life there. Now, the Legion of Superheroes, ironically, proved so popular that they would force Superboy out of the Adventure Comics book, giving the boy a, basically ending up giving him his own comic title in 1949. This made Superboy the sixth DC character to carry their own title. That title, ironically, would also be taken over by the Legion of Superheroes and go through the titles of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, then Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes, before finally becoming simply the Legion of Superheroes. And Superboy, as a result of this, would receive yet another ongoing in 1980 called The New Adventures of Superboy, which would last until 1984. Now, the miniseries, Superman the Hidden Years, would bridge the gap between Clark Kent's time as Superboy and coming to Metropolis, where he would take the name Superman, which would have happened around his junior year of college. Now, it's odd that in the context of the Superboy series, we actually saw the actual cause of Ma and Pa Kent's deaths. Previously, we had seen the bedside vigil that Clark holds with Paul giving him the big speech about fighting for truth, justice, and the American way. In this, we get a more expanded version that Ma and Pa Kent were searching for a pirate treasure when both of them caught a tropical fever, which brought about their demise, but not before Pa gave Clark the final keep fighting for good speech. And that was kind of an aspect of it that was really quite macabre in a way. And we really, when you think about it, prior to this, we had seen a few flashbacks but obviously, it was within the context of Superboy that we even got to know Mon Pa Kent as they were deceased upon the Superman era of books. And that remained that way for quite some time. Now, I have a whole special place in my heart for Superboy. My introduction to him was through the Bozo the Clown show in the early 80s. Now, the show would feature two cartoon shorts a day. Usually, it would be either a Superman or Superboy cartoon from Filmation or a Batman and Robin cartoon from Filmation. Now, the Superboy cartoon we talked about previously, it was produced from 1966 to 1969 and ran as a very short segment during the New Adventures of Superman t uh, cartoon show on Saturday mornings. And it, it, just watching this show, it, every other day would, would be Superboy, and I just fell in love with the idea. And I think, to be honest, if we're being completely honest, I was a Superboy fan before I was a Superman fan Primarily because Superboy had a dog. And how cool was that? A dog that could fly, wore a cape, was very, very smart. How would that not appeal to a preschooler or you know, early elementary? I don't remember exactly how old I was. And yes, just to make a note, I'm going to have a full episode on Crypto and the Super Pets, which I show is actually slated for May. So I'll talk a little bit more about Crypto at that point. And I do mean I will talk a lot more about Crypto. But on, as far as the Superboy concept, as far as the cartoon, I think some of the appeal, at least for me and maybe uh, children watching at that time, it was the fact that Superboy was this superhero, went out and did all the good deeds. But at the end of the day, he had parents to answer to. And of course, for me, he lived in a small Midwest town, which uh, was kind of similar to my uh, upbringing here in southwest Missouri. And of course, 
he had to deal with the rigors of school, which was very relatable, being a Superman fan, going through elementary and junior high and high school and even into adulthood. It's not always easy because you're kind of the, the nerds of the nerd world in some cases. Uh, because a lot of kids were reading X-Men, Teen Titans, and I was just digging my little Superman universe. So I took a lot of crap, which Clark did, and I just related to that. Now, sadly, Superboy would, re- would be removed from continuity during Crisis on Infinite Earths, which would hold a bit of ironic timing. Because following Crisis on Infinite Earths, Clark would not assume his heroic identity until he was an adult in Metropolis, which would erase Superboy from continuity completely. Kind of. Now, Crisis also introduced an alternate Superboy, who was known as Superboy Prime. On what is supposed to be our Earth, Earth Prime, where we actually read the comic books, it's our Earth. The ship actually crashed on Jerry and Naomi Kent's farm. And they adopted the baby that was inside, just like Mon Pa Kent. And even knowing the uh, comic book roots of the name, knowing how much ridicule he would get, they still named him Clark Kent. Now this Superboy, as it turned out, was shot through the dimensional portal by Jor-El. And he would actually find that he has superpowers like his comic book counterpart, which would become active when he was a teenager following the passing of Haley's Comet... And, of course, he would assume the guise of Superboy, but his career on this Earth was cut short when the Earth was obliterated by the Anti-Monitor. This Superboy joined the Earth-2 Superman, Alexander Luthor from Earth-3, and Earth-2's Lois Lane in a Paradise Dimension, which would protect them from the complete collapse of the multiverse, but it would leave the DC Universe without a Superboy. The TV world, however, was just getting started on Superboy. He may not be appearing in comics... But Ilya and Alexander Salakine, who made the first three Christopher Reeve movies and Supergirl, had sold you know those movie rights to Canon at that point, but still owned the rights to Superboy, Supergirl, and Superpup. And following the syndicated uh, success of Star Trek The Next Generation and Friday the 13th the series, they began developing a Superboy TV show. Now this would not be the first time anyone attempted to bring Superboy to the small screen, In 1961, following the death of George Reeves, a Superboy pilot was produced starring Johnny Rockwell as the Boy of Steel in an attempt to replace the cash-generating TV show. It never got off the ground beyond the pilot. And we may talk about that somewhere down the line. I don't have it in the plans, but we kind of, I think, at some point we'll need to take a look at that. Salakine, however, he was able to get his version made. John Hames Newton, who had very little acting experience and was bussing tables at the time, was cast as a young Clark Kent, while Stacey Haydick was brought on board as Lana Lang. Now, unlike the Superboy of the comics, this Clark Kent was in college at Schuster University in Siegelville, Florida, which is clearly a homage to the creators who were still alive at this time. And Florida, okay, this is the first thing that threw me off in the show. It's in Florida. It's a locale that bared no resemblance to either Metropolis or Smallville. It just threw me off, but the series made its debut on October 8, 1988, and would last four seasons, although Hames Newton would only appear in the first of these, being replaced with Gerard Christopher in seasons two through four. Now, the Superboy TV show aired its final episode on May 17, 1992, nearly a year before Superboy would make his return to the comics. Just 
not how you would think. The new Superboy made his debut in Action Comics number 500, which was the beginning of Superman's return from the dead following his death at the hands of Doomsday. So this would have been 1993. This Superboy was actually one of the four new characters that showed up looking to take the mantle of Superman. Now he was aged about 15, but unlike the original Superboy, this Superboy was a clone from the labs at Cadmus. And he was headstrong, brash, sported a fade haircut and leather jacket, which was pretty much out of style even then. He marched on the scene. He, of course, made a big spectacle out of himself and actually ended up accidentally living in Clark Kent's apartment. Now, this version of Superboy actually had a manager in Rex Leach who had a daughter, Roxy, who kind of helped him acclimate and promote his super image. So we actually saw a Superman that was looking at royalties and merchandising rights. Now, of course, throughout the reign of the Superman, we began to see a little bit more of him, and Superman, of course, returned. Now, while Super this Superboy went by Superman during the reign of the Superman storyline, he would actually relent and accept his role of Superboy at the end of that upon the return of the original. And this Superboy went to Hawaii and marketed himself with Rex Leach and, his, and Roxy and actually had a reporter analog to Lois Lane in the version in, the, uh, in, in Tana Moon. This became really awkward because Tana and Superboy ended up becoming a couple. So Superboy at this point is aged about 16. Tana was a young adult. And by young adult, I mean college age, maybe post-college age. And it ironically ended up that became a reason they broke up, was Tana was getting ridiculed for dating a 16-year-old boy. Now, Superboy, as it turns out, not only was he a clone, he was cloned after the death by combining Kryptonian DNA with human DNA. This caused problems with the aging process, and at one point his entire DNA was coming undone, so a process was undergone so that he would permanently remain 16, which ended up breaking he and Tana Moon up. But Superboy hooked up with Knockout, so I think that's kind of a nice consolation prize. And although it was flirted at that Roxy would be more of a romantic interest on his own age, she ended up being part of the process, which made them more like family, so a romance never really budded between them. The, odd, the, the thing about this Superboy was, originally... Since he's combined with human DNA and Kryptonian DNA, it was thought that it was Cad the DNA that was submitted was Cadmus director Paul Westfield as the human half of the equation. But it later turned out that Lex Luthor formed Superboy's other half. Now, the, his powers worked a little bit differently than Superman's. This Boy of Steel's powers were based on a bioelectric field that he could use as tactile telekinesis which is what granted him flight, strength, and invulnerability. Now, it would have been easy for Superman to disregard a clone of himself, as we've seen on Young Justice, which I'm still uncomfortable with, but he granted the clone a Kryptonian name of Connell, and Superboy took the secret identity of Connor Kent. And this Superboy would support his own series for a hundred issues and join the super team Young Justice with Robin, Impulse, and Red Tornado as a mentor. Years would go by, Connor would join the Teen Titans, get a decent haircut, change his costume through the years, but he met an untimely end at the hands of Superboy Prime, who we mentioned earlier was in the Paradise Dimension. 
What happened was, during Infinite Crisis, Superboy Prime was being manipulated by Alexander Luthor. And he ended up freeing the group from the Paradise Dimension, bringing about the return of the multiverse. Superboy Prime, while in that dimension, had actually become more powerful, a little bit demented, having seen the end of his entire Earth, his entire existence. So driven by this desire to see that Earth recreated, which Alexander promised to facilitate, he actually ended up taking on the Earth-1 Superman, the Earth-2 Superman, and the entire Green Lantern Corps before being trapped in a prison which was bathed in red sunlight and guarded by Green Lanterns. Connor, however, saw a resurrection at the hands of the Legion of Superheroes, and when he returned to his own time, he settled down in Smallville, took Crypto on as a pet, and found himself learning to be a better hero. Connor now has his own series, which is great. I recommend it highly. Just, well, this Connor Kent, the Connor Kent version, I don't know how to say this correctly. At the beginning, he was just a disaster. He was a one-note wonder. He was fun during Reign of the Superman, but you didn't necessarily want to like the character. So this went on for the first few years, and it seemed like for a long time, nobody knew how to handle him. I mean, he sported that buckles and fade haircut look for way too long. And the ongoing series, it actually changed status quo from Hawaii to being trapped at Cadmus. It basically seemed like nobody knew where to put this Superboy to really make him effective. Now, don't get me wrong, there were great moments, like Connor getting the Kryptonian name, but the character didn't become viable and complete, in my opinion, until Jeff Johns began developing the idea of Connor being the product of Luther and Superman and ultimately having this failsafe where he would switch over to a more evil version. And I think this was the missing link in Connor's character, an inner turmoil he can't escape, and the desire to be more like his Kryptonian parent than his human parent, which is an interesting juxtaposition against Superman being an alien and striving to be human. Now, Connor is still out there, and the story, his story remains an interesting look at a teen with powers and what it means to use them responsibly, and as well as being a product of the world's greatest hero and perhaps the world's greatest villain. But the original Superboy is now also back in play, thanks to Infinite Crisis. In Superman's Secret Origin, we learn that Clark actually operated in the costume as a young man, but in secret. So the new Earth era actually gets not one, but two Superboys. Now, I plan on talking more about Connor and, and of course, Crypto, as I mentioned in upcoming episodes, as well as the Superman, or pardon me, Superboy TV series. Today, I really wanted to do just an overview of Superboy, as far as his Silver Age and the modern version. Just a very quick overview, just an I- as the concept, primarily leaning on the Silver Age. So... Don't walk away from this episode thinking that I just glossed over things without any intention of exploring them more fully. Uh, Superboy the TV series being an example. I just wanted to touch upon that. Now currently you can actually catch Connor in his own ongoing series and on Young Justice which airs Friday nights on the Cartoon Network. The Superboy TV series has only seen its first season released on home video with no plans to release subsequent seasons and apparently no concrete plans to release the Adventures of Superboy animated series from Filmation onto DVD. And really, I could sit here and talk a little bit about Connor all day, and of course about my favorite Superboy stories, but really right now we have an episode of Superman the Animated Series to look at, 
So we're going to get to that right after this podcast promo. Presenting the Amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast Year 2. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Mooney, John Buscema, and more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... Uh, uh, hold on, wait a second... Hey there, webheads! 12 months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to celebrate 12 months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time! So strap yourself in, and here's the hosts! This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work! Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Why no, Betty, I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners, and you're invited too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty, even Liz Allen. Okay, as long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones. Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at AmazingSpiderMan.Libsyn.com. And this week's episode of Superman the Animated Series is entitled Feeding Time, which features the premiere of The Parasite. It was originally aired September 21st, 1996, written by Robert Goodman and directed by Dan Reba. It starred Tim Daly as Superman, Dana Delaney as Lois Lane, David Kaufman as Jimmy Olsen, Lauren Tom as Angela Chin, George Zunza as Perry White, Victor Brandt as Professor Hamilton, Brian James as Rudy Jones slash The Parasite, Robert Patrick, he of T2 fame, as Martin LeBeau, Tasha Valenza as Policewoman, Mel Winkler as Commissioner Henderson, and Phil Hayes as the guard. The episode opens with Superman testing a lead suit developed by Professor Hamilton to block the rays of kryptonite and protect Superman. Professor Hamilton explains that it is actually a titanium lead alloy that Superman is wearing, and Superman is actually able to hold the kryptonite in his hand. Meanwhile, Rudy Jones is a forklift operator who is trying to load biohazardous chemicals onto a pickup truck for a very thug-like goon who promises to pay off Rudy's bookie for him. Rudy, it turns out, is not very good at the forklift operating, and it's all herky-jerky, which is not something you want to do with hazardous chemicals, believe me. The security guards of Star Labs stumble on the scene and discover that Rudy is not a forklift operator, but instead he is the janitor, which causes some suspicion to the scene. The goon that Rudy's working for pulls a gun on the security guards, and Rudy tries to stop the shooting before it happens and ends up tussling with the goon. Although he blocks the first shot, the security guards are able to get to safety, have their guns drawn, and a shootout begins to ensue between the goon and the security guards. 
which of course ends up hitting one of the many biohazardous and explosive chemicals sitting around the dock. Like we didn't see that one coming. Back in Hamilton's lab, Superman hears the alarm and whooshes off to help the fire. Rudy and his thug friends take the diversion as a chance to escape, with Rudy jumping in the back of the pickup truck and his thug driving. Keep in mind that the hazardous waste is also in the back of the truck. That's going to become important in just a just one moment. Superman takes a moment to go save the security guards in a stellar shot of him walking through the fire. He busts through the wall and actually uses the pipes as a hose to diffuse the fire rather than his super breath. Well, just for showing off purposes, I guess. Meanwhile, Rudy hangs on for dear life in the bed of the pickup as the thug begins to jerk the wheel intentionally for messing him up and calls Rudy a stupid little parasite. The truck hits a rock which ends up spilling the biohazardous chemicals all over Rudy, covering him in pink goo. The goo has an odd effect as he screams in pain, his eyes and his teeth begin to glow. It's almost like a burning sensation on Rudy. Rudy begs and begs for the thug to stop the truck. The thug actually manages to jerk the wheel and throw Rudy out just as they're crossing a bridge, causing him to land right by the river. Back at Star Labs, Superman continues to put out the fire. The security guards admit that they are surprised that Rudy Jones would take this action, and there's no telling of what was in the drums. Superman finds the pink goo where it's eaten through the sidewalk. Meanwhile, Rudy, laying on the banks of the river, is sniffed at by a rat. When some electric discharge hits the rat and begins to curse through Rudy's body, Rudy's eyes open. Metropolis police come across Rudy while driving across the bridge, a hunched over, purple-covered being. The female police officer gets out of the car to investigate, trying to talk to Rudy and communicate with him. All he does is turn his gaze upon her and stare her down. She pulls the gun because of something in Rudy's hand, which turns out to be the rat, which is nearly dead, struggling to live. Rudy pounces on the female police officer, swatting the gun out of her hand and beginning to absorb her, her basically her energy. The electric discharge courses through his body again until she is drained. Rudy reaches into the car and is able to replicate the female police officer's voice, telling the dispatcher that everything is fine. Therefore, disregarding the call for assistance, he laughs, gets behind the wheel of the car, and takes off for town. And we fade to commercial break. The next morning, or at least daytime, we find that the police officer has been found and is being taken to via ambulance to be treated. Jimmy Olsen's on the scene taking pictures of every single angle he can get before joining Clark in questioning the, the detective on the scene. The detective explains that he, she must be delirious because she was talking about being attacked by a purple ant monster, which Jimmy makes a joke about Barney. The the, the detective puts him in his place, and Clark, investigating the scene, sees another pile of the pink goo. The detective tries to warn him against touching it. Clark asks the police officer if they have identified the partner, and the detective says, yes, it's Mark LeBeau, who's living down by the docks in Hobbs Bay. We catch up with LeBeau, who's returning home with a bag full of food, obviously greasy food, and kind of feeling a little creeped out. A cat in the alley really gives him the creeps, which doesn't help when Rudy shows up in his purple form and calls out to him and says, don't you recognize me? Now accented with white, looking more like the parasite we know from the comics, Rudy approaches Mark LeBeau and tells Mark that he never need, he doesn't need help, he's never felt better, and begins to tease Mark by touching him, pulling some energy out of him little at a time. Parasite explains that he can 
absorb their energy, knows their thoughts, knows what they know. And Mark LeBeau is taken out by Rudy absorbing him to the brink of death when Superman shows up. Calls out to Rudy, tells him to stop what he's doing. Rudy does so, throwing Mark against the wall and coming face to face with Superman. Rudy feigns ignorance and he says, I've been turned into some kind of monster. Can you help me? Superman says he can take him back to Star Labs where he can receive help. But Rudy double crosses the Man of Steel, grabs him, and begins absorbing his massive amounts of energy before Superman is able to shove him off. Superman's clearly weakened by this, and Rudy is jazzed up on the power of Superman. The crowd is astonished, trying to figure out what Rudy is doing. And Rudy comes forward in order to absorb even more energy from the Man of Steel, grasping him by the face, and and the biokinetic field just keeps absorbing and absorbing. The two actually begin to fight now that Rudy has absorbed some of that. He's a physical match for Superman. And throws Superman across the bay into a street lamp, which Superman snaps off and uses to try to club Rudy. But Rudy is starting to really grasp these powers and knock Superman into the water of the bay. And before he flies off with Superman's power, he tells the crowd to tell their friends there's a new Superman in town. We come back to a newscast talking about the parasite. Rudy's been basically going through the city, taking what he pleases, driving the citizens of Metropolis into their homes and basically ruling the city with fear. Angela Chen talks about how Professor Hamilton in a television interview explains how the chemical was meant to catalyze human cells for absorption, but absorbed way more on Rudy than what was intended. Back at the day of the planet, Clark is suffering from a cold, as the question is posed, how long until he sucks the energy out of the whole city? Jimmy's concerned about the parasite thing, running around with the powers of Superman, and ponders where is Superman himself when Clark gets a phone call. Turns out there may be some good news after all. Clark tells Jimmy they're going to go for a ride, while the parasite, in a back alley, uses the x-ray vision to peer into a bank where he sees the vault. Although the powers are starting to fritz out, which definitely frustrates the parasite. Parasite begins trying to bash through the wall, only to find that his strength is now fading He's running out of Superman's energy. The sound of police sirens rushes him off. At the hospital, the female police officer tells Clark and Jimmy that she feels better and the doctor says they can go home tomorrow. Clark and Jimmy begin to realize Parasite's effects are temporary and Clark's strength is starting to come back. Back at his apartment, Clark on a phone call to Perry tells him that Superman should be coming out soon. Clark opens up his shirt to reveal his Superman costume, but a gust of wind blows through his apartment. Clark finds that his terrace door is open and is attacked by the Parasite, who begins to reabsorb Superman's energy all over again. Parasite informs him that he knows he's Clark Kent, continues to drain him and explain he's got his powers, his secret identity, and Superman passes out from the drain. Superman wakes up in a boiler room, chained to the wall, held hostage by the Parasite. Parasite asks Superman why does he use his x-ray vision to figure out where he is. But Superman can't since the Parasite absorbed his energy. Superman explains to Parasite that when he doesn't come to work as Clark Kent, people will come looking for him. Which Parasite proves he can avoid since he can mimic the voice of Clark Kent and simply call in. He explains to Superman that he's going to keep him chained here, coming back every 24 hours to absorb him. Meanwhile, on the streets of Metropolis, Parasite is back at his old habits, robbing a jewelry store and flying off his stolen merchandise. Back in the boiler room, Superman is able to use a little bit of his heat vision, tries to heat up the chains, but no avail. Back at the Daily Planet, Perry is ranting, where is Superman? And where's Kent? Is he still out sick? Jimmy, however, is the one that comes up with a solution. Parasite always flies south, back towards where Star is. Jimmy explains that nobody's checked out Star Labs lately, and somebody should go down there. And Perry kind of shrugs it off, tells him to get the photos to lay out. And throws Jimmy out of the meeting. Jimmy's kind of dejected, but 
suddenly realizes he sees the Perry White's press pass and heads over to Star Labs himself. At Star Labs, Jimmy is looking to learn about Rudy Jones the man. And the security guard says, you look a little young to be a reporter, Mr. White. Back in the boiler room, Superman's still trying to use his heat vision, while in his super hearing picks up Jimmy's voice. Superman smiles, knowing his pal is there. In the janitor's closet, Jimmy looks around, opens up Rudy's locker, and gets scared by a broom that falls out. Superman begins tapping on the pipes as Jimmy looks around, which Jimmy picks up. Jimmy is able to make out that Superman is tapping in Morse code and is putting out an SOS. And Jimmy just pulls out the locker to discover a hidden maintenance hatch, which he crawls into. Jimmy follows the tapping and the maintenance hatch down into the boiler room, where he discovers Superman chained up. Superman asks Jimmy where he is, and Jimmy explains that he's at Star Labs. Parasite will be back any moment, and Jimmy needs to go get help. Jimmy instead grabs a crowbar and is able to begin peeling back the links of the chain and get Clark free. But Clark's super hearing picks up Parasite flying in and tells Jimmy to hide. Parasite pops up from a grate in the floor, greets Superman by saying, Hello, dinner. Parasite explains how his whole life everybody's been stepping on him and now he's the one with the power. Superman poses the question, What have you done with this power? Given the people the raw deal he they, that they've given him, Parasite knows something's up because Superman is suddenly chattering quite a bit. By absorbing just a little bit of Superman's energy, Superman sees the memory... Pardon me. Parasite sees the memory and knows Jimmy is there. Begins to pursue Jimmy through the boiler room. Parasite smacks Jimmy around a little bit and begins trying to absorb his energy. But Superman has managed to get free and knocks Parasite right in the face with a hook. Superman grabs Jimmy and gets them both out of the boiler room and into the doctors in Star Labs, screaming for them to clear out of the place. Superman spots a weapon testing lab in Star and heads for it. Of course, the Parasite, in deep search of his prey, follows. As soon as Parasite enters the weapons lab, Superman uses a laser to bring a a balcony down on top of him, which just ticks off Rudy that much more. Superman runs into a vault that reads, No Admittance. It turns out that's Professor Hamilton's lab, and we see the suit from earlier, as well as a space suit, which we're going to see in an upcoming episode, both with the Superman emblem. Superman clears his throat, getting Parasite's attention, and knocks Parasite across the room. Now adorned in his lead titanium suit, Superman battles the Parasite. Parasite throws Superman into the safe that has the kryptonite box from earlier. As, Par- as Parasite tries to grab his energy by ripping off the faceplate of his helmet, but ends up grabbing the kryptonite instead, which pretty much fries the Parasite, turning him green. Superman replaces the faceplate and looks down upon the fallen Parasite. Afterwards, Hamilton explains that they will keep him there until he'll get a special cell at Strikers. Rudy sits there looking incredibly sad but not saying anything, and Hamilton says he's been like that the whole time. As we see Rudy in its final scene, a cockroach climbs up on the, the his bunk, which he's able to absorb, which brings a smile to Rudy's face. And the episode fades to credits. I remember this episode quite heavily because I felt Rudy, at least in the initial scenes, was a very sympathetic version of the character Parasite. He really started out as the victim, but you lose that... Uh, that sympathy, that connection with the character as soon as he becomes an out-and-out villain. You can kind of understand going after the thug, LeBeau, that kind of messed him over and really left him for dead. But the idea that, hey, this it's been, I've been stepped on my whole life, now I've got powers, I'm going to return it around on the, on the world, I, I don't know. It just it doesn't strike me as an interesting character. But then again, I've never been a Parasite fan. I remember enjoying this episode and a subsequent episode with him, but I remembered 
the previous time I watched it, which has been a while back, really feeling for Rudy. And then that was just stripped away because I guess we remember things differently. Anyway, long story short, this episode had a lot of weak points. A weak villain. Superman was pretty much out of commission for the majority of the episode. Jimmy ends up being the hero, which is a strong point. But you see Lois in one scene. It just it didn't feel like a Superman episode when Superman's chained up as a hostage for half of it. So it really did kind of bring that down. You didn't have a villain that was all that interesting. And Parasite's powers didn't entirely work like that in the comics. True, they didn't go way off script. But it just seemed like the episode was unfocused as I am watching this episode. I never did get a get that traction that I got upon a previous viewings. So I'm going to go and just give it a two S shields out of five. Not the one of the stronger episodes of the series, but not necessarily one of the weakest as we're going to see. And that pretty much wraps up the show this week. I just want to thank everybody for joining me. And I want to remind you to come back Thursday when we look at June 2007 cover dated comic books and we will be back up to full staff we will have four books so it should be a good episode so join me this thursday this has been superman forever radio a production of supermanforever.com as always you can find the show and leave a review on itunes or visit supermanforever.com and of course the show is a proud member of the superman podcast network where you can find other great superman podcasts covering all eras of the man of steel at supermanpodcastnetwork.com Drop the show an email at mail at supermanforever.com or follow the show on Twitter. The username is at Superman, the number four, ever. Superman forever. And you, be, you can become a fan of the show on Facebook. Simply search for supermanforever.com and press the like button. Leave a voicemail at the call-in line, which is 703-95-SUPER. That's 703-957-8737. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, and related elements are trademarks of DC Comics, a Warner Brothers Entertainment Company. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and no profit is made from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, and until next episode, keep on fighting the never-ending battle.